Hello, my lovelies. Welcome back to another episode of Did You Read the Book, a comparative podcast where movie buffs and bookworms come together to talk about stories and their adaptations that we love, hate, or love to hate. I am your host, Aaron Palmer, and today I am joined by the lovely Mr. Dan. Hello, Dan. Welcome. Oh, hello, Aaron. Thank you for having me on here. Oh, thank you for being here. I am so excited to talk to you about this. Yes, this is going to be a good one. Yes, a good pick. I'm so glad you reached out because this has been on the list for a while, and I'm excited. <laughs> so without further ado, what are we talking about today? Uh, today, we will be discussing Alan Moore and David Lloyd's V for Vendetta, also adapted into film. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about this one. Uh, it, I think the film c- finally came out in 2005. It was delayed, but the first trailers hit in 2004 when I yeah. was a highly impressionable and edgy 14-year-old boy. <laughs> Um, oh, we just dated ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I can safely say that uh, V for Vendetta has had a huge influence on both me and every other basement dwelling uh, young gentleman in the world, <laughs> um, as well as people of many. many I was going to say, I guess I'd qualify as the, the men in basements because I am <laughs> obsessed with this too. I'll just like roll myself in there, shall I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Honorary. Yeah. That's Yes, I'll take it. I'll take it. What a good crowd to be a part of. Uh, <laughs> I love it. So yeah, and uh, you already kind of rolled the way for me. Thank you. Uh, so adaptation is also called V for Vendetta, which was directed by James McTeague, and the screenplay was written by the Wachowski sisters. Gold. Indeed. And again, it was released in 2005, starring Natalie Portman, Hugo Weaving, Stephen Fry, John Hurt, Rupert Graves, Stephen Ray, Roger Allen, Tim Pickett-Smith, and many, 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 many other actors. Amazing cast in this film. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like fangirling and we haven't even started yet. I love it. It's amazing. Um, and then before we get started, spoiler alert, we are talking about this in depth. We're talking a lot. So if you don't want things spoiled, pause, read the book. Watch the movie. Come back and talk with us. And before we get started, Mr. Dan, Mm. are you pro-source or pro-adaptation? Oh, I am very pro-source. Ooh, do tell. Give us a little teaser. Um, I would say for me, I am always about darker and harsher. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think you can't beat the graphic novel. I actually have come around to enjoying the film quite a bit. Because uh, again, as I said, I watched this for the first time when I was an edgy, uh, edgy teenage boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, at, and at first, I was like, "They changed it. This is impossible. You're not allowed to change it." Now I, I know why they did it. But... I I totally agree. I think when I was younger, I was like, "It's nothing like the original. This is the worst." <laughs> but now it's like I have a different appreciation for like, well, yeah, it's not spot on. But I, I've talked about this with many of my other guests. It's the tone. Mm. It's the tone that really does it. And I, I agree. I think the you really can't beat that graphic novel. It is so dense and so amazing. But the movie is pretty good, too, for different reasons, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yes. All right. Well, let's get into it. Can you give us a synopsis of the source, please? All right. Uh, so V for Vendetta, by uh, it was written by Alan Moore. The art was provided by David Lloyd. Um, they consider each other to be co-creators, charmingly enough. <laughs> Originally, it was released in a black and white uh, British magazine called Warrior that only lasted till about, uh, started in 1982, lasted until about 1985. It was incomplete at the time the magazine was canceled. Eventually, they got picked up by DC Comics in 1988. 
reprinted the originals and finished out the series in living color. Well, mm. actually, technically not living color because it was almost comic living book. color, semi living <laughs> color. Uh, they finished it out in a ten issue series and then kept it in print forever, so they wouldn't have to give the rights back to Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> womp womp. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, kind of a pattern in his uh, career. Um, that's, what I, that's what I gathered. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> in any more. case, uh, it's it's a very dark series to give you a brief uh, synopsis in a post-nuclear world britain is ruled by the iron fist of norse fire a remorseless fascist regime the enigmatic terrorist v engages in a campaign of violent insurrection against the state but is this merely a vendetta for wrongs done to him or does the masked maniac desire something more Ooh, love it uh, i love yes. it did you write that uh, yes, yes, oh! that is something I wrote. A plus, um, kid. You were the first person <laughs> to actually write a synopsis instead of like reading it off the book or googling it, which is what my lazy butt does. So, <laughs> kudos. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, just uh, giving a brief bit of context. Uh, yeah, original comic um, written in the early '80s. Uh, the British comic scene was very, very edgy, very punk mm-hmm. rock. Um, yeah. I think 2000 AD started in the late '70s. That's where the character Judge Dredd. Um, is from and a lot of there were a lot of sort of cheaper black and white British magazines uh, that featured these sort of very edgy complicated dark kind of anti-hero characters a lot of the time Mm -hmm. the protagonists were not as sympathetic as the uh, true blue superheroes of American comics and eventually uh, a fair number of British creators actually came over to the US and launched a whole sort of renaissance um, in the 1980s so yeah, there's a it's a really fascinating piece of sort of comic history, but yeah, the comic itself is it is really something. Uh, it is. It is very dense. Um, it's very it's quite bleak. Essentially, just to give a little bit more of an overview, it is it is set in this world where there has been a limited nuclear exchange that has essentially devastated the planet. Uh, Britain was not affected because they had actually removed their nuclear missiles, so they were not a target. Alan Moore has more or less admitted that's not how it would have worked in real life. Um, But But we'll just carry on, carry on. For the sake of the story, it has to be about an isolated uh, UK that is under the control of this brutal fascist state. um, Mm -hmm. And it is being terrorized. The fascists are being terrorized by V, who's this very eccentric character dressed up uh, like Guy Fawkes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun because we're recording this not too long after Guy Fawkes Day. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. We're you were so close. We just I know. we just barely uh, missed recording this on Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, we are we are obviously uh, this is I'm I'm an American. We're speaking with American accents, so not <laughs> everyone, especially when the film was first released, not everybody was particularly familiar with Guy Fawkes Day. But just yeah, just in case, I think uh, I think the movie definitely sort of spread awareness of that outside of um, the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to give brief context, um, early 1600s, there was a lot of conflict between Catholics and Protestants in Britain. There were a lot of laws against the Catholics, and Guy Fawkes was a member of a conspiracy to pack the cellars underneath Parliament with gunpowder, blow them up when they were in session and lead a massive revolt and hopefully seize the throne and restore a Catholic monarch to Britain instead of 
James the first actually is usually understood to be a Catholic sim- sympathizer, but yeah. he wasn't sympathetic enough for these. Not guys. quite there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not good so, enough, they say. <laughs> yeah, uh, Fox himself uh, gets strongly. He's sort of the centerpiece of the plot as it's remembered, mm-hmm. but he was not actually the mastermind. Uh, yeah. He was sort of a mercenary. He had been fighting for the Spanish for many years, and so he was a very devout Catholic. And so he was the one who was put in charge of actually working the explosives because he had explosives experience. Mm. Um, but it was not his scheme. It was something he fully supported, but there were other people who actually plotted it. He yeah. was the guy who got caught. Um, he was very, very uh, brutally tortured. The seeds of his anti-herodom were sown in that instant because... Uh, he was remarkable for the fact that he resisted the torture for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of a, a matter of public record that the British government was actually very impressed with him. Um, but he did eventually break, turn all of his buddies over, Whoopsie. get executed, get drawn and cornered. And uh, now he has burned an effigy every year to celebrate the fact that his plot failed. Yep. And that is the character that the more or less protagonist of the graphic novel dresses up as. Yeah, it's pretty wild that there's an entire holiday day for a terrorist, essentially. Like, I just think that's so amazing that they've commemorated yeah. that particular person. Like, I found that fascinating. And well, and I mean, that's yeah. what's sort of that's what's sort of funny about it um, is that you know, so so over here in the states, we have you know, oh, the Fourth of July, you know, the yeah. heroic stand and all that yeah. stuff, and yeah. uh, it. And then uh, Guy Fox Day is, uh, is literally about celebrating taking out the guy who is trying to. And then some people have switched it around to being about celebrating Guy Fox. Yeah, um, like it's, it's anarchy day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which uh, uh, one of my, my uh, history major friends in college was very, she was always very irked about that because she said he wasn't an anarchist. He was a Catholic <laughs> fanatic. Like if you want to. You different. Know, like... Very, very different. <laughs> That is actually important but, distinction. But he has, because in part because of the, the comic book and the movie, he has become sort of this symbol of anarchy instead of yeah. how important it is for the Pope to have more influence. <laughs> yeah, that guy, the Pope, Poppy. Um, uh, yeah, so that, that brings up a really interesting question I have for you, actually. So mm-hmm. in the graphic novel, mm-hmm. there isn't, nearly as much focus i'm trying not to compare too much but there isn't nearly as much focus on guy fox as kind of an element besides the mask yeah in the graphic novel and i thought that was so interesting that they have like a very iconic mask that is very well known in the uk obviously not as well known in the states until you know the film came out yeah Yeah, and i just wanted to get your thoughts on like do you think that was like what do you think the kind of thought process behind that was for choosing that is just because it's like UK culture, do you think? Or yeah, well, I think uh, so. Alan Moore talks about it a little bit in the the edition I have has you know some of his like essays and, and mm-hmm. forwards and stuff because it yeah, was back in yeah. the day when comics had forwards. I know, um, right? And uh, <laughs> he uh, he talked a little bit about the process of creating the character and how da- he and David Lloyd had gone back and forth on what he should look like. Like they had initially come up with this concept that he would be dressed sort of like the fascist foot soldiers that he would Mm. be kind of working from within their system so he had this kind of cool 
sort of commando-y outfit that had been modified to have like a big V on his chest. And, you know, they said, ah, that works all right, but it's not very distinct. There was a lot of material like that at the time. Mm. Um, And then David Lloyd had the inspiration to be like, wait a minute, Guy Fawkes is the symbol, like he's always been the symbol of people trying to overthrow the government. So what Mm -hmm. if our anarchist hero dresses up like him and is kind of trying to embody this world's version of that person? Mm -hmm. You know, it, it gets into a lot. There's a very interesting sort of moral ambiguity to V, right? Um, yeah. But I think he he doesn't walk the line between hero and villain. I think he walks the line between anti-hero and anti-villain. Yeah. <laughs> like no, of, totally. I totally agree and, with uh, that. <laughs> yeah. And that like quite frequently he is framed in a very morally negative way. Mm-hmm. Now, like he's always working for his cause, but he reminds me quite a bit of... I don't know. I'm sure you've seen uh, the movie Serenity. The oh, yeah. Film of, so the antagonist in Serenity is this guy who's just called the operative. Yeah. God, what a crazy character. Sort of, yeah, he's like this unstoppable kind of assassin secret agent character who's fanatically mm-hmm. devoted to this all-powerful government he works for Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is he waxes poetic quite a bit about how he knows that he is actually a bad person for all of the horrible things he does but he thinks that eventually every horrible thing he does will cause a utopia to be created and he knows he couldn't live in that he would have to be dead for the utopia to uh right to exist which one uh, piece of the puzzle yeah spoiler alert is something he has in common with v (laughs) <laughs> spoiler first spoiler of the day all right yeah. dropping it <laughs> yeah no that's a great comparison i love that and then ugh, beautiful choice i love serenity i love firefly awesome yeah yeah it, it is interesting to see a anti-protagonist or an anti something i don't even know how to categorize what v's character is because he really is a terrorist but the way that he is written he is the protagonist of the story and you do actually sympathize with him because of the background that he came from where he was (laughs) tortured by the government and like tested on. And I mean, there's a crazy backstory on him. So there's a lot of trauma that he's had to kind of come to grips with and that creates the character of V. And then he kind of goes on this quote unquote terrorist anarchy (laughs) track but you sympathize and you actually kind of root for that character, which it's it's I, I do love stories that kind of flip the table that, you know, mm. one one person sees them as a terrorist and the other sees them as a freedom fighter. And where's that line? And it's it's kind of genius. I, I love it. <laughs> right. And I think, uh, you know, I think what's kind of interesting to compare, you know, compare between now and the, at the time that uh, the comic was written, you know, it's like the 1980s, the troubles were still going on in Ireland. So like terrorism yeah. was something that, you know, anybody living in the UK would have been pretty familiar with. Mm-hmm. And also the stuff going on in Berlin. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Soviets. I mean, those like there was yeah. a whole bunch of stuff going on in the 80s, a lot of political turmoil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's it's sort of interesting because initially like the obvious reason to sympathize with V is that he's up against this kind of fascistic government. You know, Norse mm-hmm. fire is very brutal. They're racial supremacists. You know, they they're very uh, homophobic. They have all of these and, and yeah. they're extremely corrupt. 
Oh um, God, yeah. Which is a, you know <laughs> something I find kind of interesting about it. Poignant. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but what's kind of interesting is that several of the characters who work for the government are also written in a very sympathetic way. Um, yeah. You know, like that uh, Detective Finch effectively becomes one of the protagonists of the story. He's the mm-hmm. he's the detective who's supposed to solve the V case, who's supposed to hunt down V. And mm-hmm. you see that he's pretty much a decent guy. You know, it's just that he definitely didn't fight against the fascist takeover mm-hmm. um, and kind of went with the flow and how he has his own his own issues and guilt with that. At right. the same time as you can completely understand why, from his perspective, you have to stop the guy who's going around, you know, stabbing politicians and government workers yeah. and blowing, blowing up buildings, up yeah, taking yeah. people hostage and doing all sorts of nasty business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a very very dense uh, work. I'm not even sure where to start with it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just reread it recently because it had been a hot second since I'd read it. And I'm like. Damn, this thing is just—it's so—it—it it really is like a piece of literature. Like people think, oh, it's a comic book; it's for children. I'm like, this is not for children. Yeah. It's violent. It is heavy. It is like just just the way that it's written. It's it's not a comic book. This is not you know '50s Superman, right? This is it, yeah. It is really literature, and it it's beautifully written, and the artwork gives it such life and. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree. It's like I don't even know how to unpack it because there's so much in there. Like we could spend probably this entire episode <laughs> yeah, just, just breaking down the book. It's so dense, but it's. I mean, I I guess the thing that kind of stood out to me is so you were saying in the beginning that it was broken out into kind of editions when it was right. first being written, and then you know a couple years went by, DC picks it up, and then they compiled it all into one book. So it's like, it has chapters, which were originally the editions when they were first being released. And mm-hmm. I noticed that the chapters all begin with the letter V. <laughs> yeah. Every single one. Yeah. And it, I forgot about that. And I literally was almost done with it the other day. And all right. Like, and you were like, oh Wait my God, I totally, minute. and I like flipped back through the book. I was like, oh my God, every chapter begins with V. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And I, I was like real slow on the uptake. Uh, but it's genius. I mean, the yeah. whole thing is packaged so perfectly. And I, ugh, ugh, it's so good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> what's, you know, what we were discussing a little bit before we started, but um, I was thinking a lot about, as I was reading it, you know, Alan Moore and David Lloyd have talked a bit about how they had a rough outline when they started, mm-hmm. but that it went in very different directions and it sort of mm. matured as it went along. And so when I was sure. reading it through this time, I was thinking about how the first book, the first section, which is V going after the people um, who tortured him when he was in the the concentration camp. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of relatively conventional, like Batman style. Comic. Oh yeah, you know yeah. that it's like very anti-hero feel for sure. Yeah, that there's this, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of focus on you know V has all of these kind of cool gadgets. He has his cool hideout, and a lot of uh, each chapter is about V pursuing a particular target and how does he take the target out and what's his relationship with the target. Right. You know, and that it has this. It's anti-heroic, but there's a lot of emphasis on sort of the action, you know, and the surprise and the suspense. And then we move into book two um, when we we haven't discussed the character of Evie yet. Uh, Maybe we should save her for the, the film. 
We can do whatever you like. Um, we, we can we can do both. We can do neither. It doesn't uh, matter. Well, so <laughs> so uh, V does uh, in the first chapter. He rescues a young woman named Evie, um, who's about to be assaulted by a government. Um, I guess they're essentially the secret police. Yeah, fingermen. He rescues her and sort of takes her down into the shadow gallery, which is basically his bat cave. That is the <laughs> best name. I. I'm obsessed with that name, and I'm oh, I don't even know where that name came from, but I don't care because it's gold. I yeah, love, it's such a good name for a hideout. Yeah, um, I love it, and it has in the comic in particular. It's interesting because it's almost this surreal space, like it's it's it drawn with like a lot of sort of black areas, and they talk about how the whole construction of it is like a maze. People can't really figure yeah. out how to move through it except for V's the only one who really understands how to move through the shadow gallery but mm-hmm. in any case uh, he rescues this young woman she becomes sort of his uh, sidekick as the two of them kind of discuss morality and what he is attempting to do mm-hmm. and then at the start of book two he actually drives her out of the shadow gallery and the majority of book two is all about her wandering around kind of alone in the Norse fire controlled Britain and how she sort of attempts to have a normal life, but her life is increasingly impossible and you don't really see V very much. Like he's, yeah, he's present. He's kind of observing things and you do see him, you know, you see like the aftermath of some of his attacks, but it Mm -hmm. is mostly just about her and her life Mm -hmm. until her boyfriend gets murdered her boyfriend is sort of involved in the criminal underworld he gets murdered um and then she is going to avenge him in a vigilante killing and she's grabbed before she can do that horrifically tortured and uh well i don't know how much of this i want to go into (laughs) spoilers people i warned you we're going into it um But the long story yeah. short is she has this series of horrific uh, experiences of being tortured and broken down and interrogated. And eventually she slowly discovers, and something that's sort of hinted at to the reader is that she is going through the exact same experience V had, more or less. And of course, the big reveal is that it's not the government that grabbed her, it's V. <laughs> yeah. Know, and that's so like... let's, yeah, let's talk about that for yeah. a hot second. Okay, so... Okay, so reading that whole sequence, like you learn about the atrocities that happened to V, which in itself was like, holy shit, this is nuts that the government even sanctioned this. And not only that, but they they isolate it to like black people, really like black people, Asian people has been like people of color were Mm -hmm. grabbed off the streets and were taken to literally concentration camps. And also homosexual people were taken to these camps and were medically tested on with like radioactivity and all this other crazy stuff to try to help the efforts of, you know, post-nuclear life. I think it's... It's implied to be sort of a eugenics thing as far as far as like it's, it's it? implied okay. to be that they're they're working on some kind of a serum that would enhance human physical capacity. And yeah. V is the only one it's successful on. Yeah. And it's just like mass murdering all these people of a minority. Yeah. Well, everyone in a minority and with as with so many fascist organizations in real life, it eventually becomes just everyone that they don't want around. Yep. <laughs> yep. If you step out of line, if you protest, they swipe you off the street and you are never seen again, like just people disappearing. And yeah, so like that whole thing happens to V and many, many other people. So then E V goes through the same kind of 
you know, that whole scenario just to experience what he did. And what are your thoughts on the rationale of like him doing that was in order to help Evie basically like set herself free because she was basically like in fear of life, of the government, of everything that was going on. And this was like his way of setting her free. Like what? Yeah, what you, well, I, what are your thoughts on that? I would say uh, in the in the comic in particular, this might be more of a comparison thing. Um, oh yeah, go for it. I would say in the comic in particular, it's essentially because he's grooming her as his successor. Yes, um, is that he that is wants true. he wants her to have had the same experiences as him, but specifically the thing that he very clearly values about her is that she doesn't kill people. You know, yeah. and that that V. Uh, yeah, she refuses. V's ultimate goal, you know, his ultimate goal is to overthrow the government, create a a state of anarchy, and then hopefully have an anarchist utopia bloom from that. Mm -hmm. Just start over. But that he, like the operative in Serenity, he knows he doesn't have a place in that world. All he can really do is destroy things. So yeah, that's quite a good moment. And then we get into the third book, which sort of leads into the collapse of the government. We haven't really talked about uh, the dictator, Adam Susan, in the book. I know that I th- name. <laughs> I think there's a lot of very deliberate stuff going on with him. Um, oh, okay, because uh, because Norsefire is framed as this, you know, very it's very homophobic, and yet there are a lot of aspects of Norsefire's sort of underbelly that are implied to be a lot more sexually licentious. Yeah, that like. Adam Susan himself is this very repressed individual. You know, he doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He has never um, had any kind of romantic or sexual relationship. And when you get into his head a little bit more, you see how, you know, how a lot of his ideology stems from his neuroses about these subjects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that I think, you know, that is part of uh, that's a little joke, I guess you would say, is that his name is Mr. Susan. (laughs) that he has a traditionally and that very feminine name yeah Yeah. it's a traditionally feminine name and that's you know not unheard of like i i think especially in britain um i remember reading once about a i think a victoria cross recipient in the 1800s whose first name was meredith so he's this big buff 19th century soldier you know fought in all these battles got their highest award and his first name (laughs) meredith is something something i love it (laughs) (laughs) you know why not yeah why not i love it (laughs) so susan is a pretty interesting character it's interesting how what the inverse of v he is in terms of him being so sort of fragile and v is so in in the comic v is pretty much invincible and as alan moore and uh, david lloyd talked about how you know sort of the eventual reveal of v is that there's nobody underneath the mask anymore that he's an idea not a person right the person is irrelevant. Yeah, the person is irrelevant. But yeah, so that's that Susan is this man who sort of projects invincibility. Like he is the head of this very brutal, repressive regime. And yet he is incredibly vulnerable and lonely and just kind of pathetic. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and like in the very first couple of pages of the compiled book, mm-hmm. you see like when Evie is almost getting assaulted by the Fingerman, mm-hmm. you see a poster on the wall, on the brick wall that says uh, strength and purity, purity in uh, uh, purity through faith. faith. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Purity through faith. So that <laughs> in a nutshell is like that's the regime that you're looking at is that they focus on the purity and they focus on the faith and the strength of all of those things and that kind of is like 
Mr. Susan in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to say, and none of them live up to it. Like, oh, God, uh, no. <laughs> it, you know, it would be... It would be kind of interesting to, uh, this is my awful cor- crossover comic idea, is uh, <laughs> V versus Judge Dredd. Oh my uh, God, because, that'd be wild. You know, Judge Dredd <laughs> is supposed to, he's literally supposed to be sort of the perfect authoritarian, right? That mm-hmm. he's like, he's not corrupt. He doesn't get off on hurting people. He has no actual prejudices. He's just right. into complete and utter centralized authority. You know, and that that'd that, be a wild crossover. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's uh one of one of my top ten awful crossover ideas. <laughs> but, uh I'd buy that. Yeah. Um <laughs> I'd, I'm sure Alan Moore would just blow it yet another gasket if he has any left. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, and going back to kind of like the infrastructure of the regime. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was really cool that in the this is very much just in the comic book side. Mm-hmm. You've got Mister Susan, who is the head, and yes. then you've got all of the factions that work under this umbrella, like the eyes, the right. ears, eyes, the, the finger, fa- the fingers. The nose. Yeah. yeah, so they're all these factions of the government, and they all have these, you know, anatomy names to talk about how you know the head and the body is the government and then all these branches that branch off like limbs or appendages i love how they did that it it is pretty genius if i so if i remember correctly i ugh, i'm going to feel very foolish right now but i know there is a particular fascist philosophy that that that's a direct response to oh is um, it i didn't know that i i can't remember so so take this with a huge grain of salt um <laughs> but it might be called corporatism i am not sure so all our listeners you guys can google this and, google it. and figure it out we're for not yourself. professionals folks <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh that that essentially there is sort of this one of the potential fascist philosophies or sort of more authoritarian philosophies is that a government and by extension a society should function like a physical human body that okay you know the head of state should be like the brain the military Mm -hmm. is the muscles industry is like its skeleton and that it should all work in perfect concert which uh as happened in real life and also is illustrated in the comic is not how authoritarian states actually work no almost always everybody is at each other's throats and trying to take over yeah, on paper it looks great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it is. Kind of, that's really I, that makes a lot of sense breaking it down in that way because that's that's literally what they like. You know, what Alan Moore wrote is the whole political sphere that he created is all about the different arms or branches, and in some cases, the literal like the hand of the government, right. the, like the voice of London. Right. Yeah, that he's the vo- the voice. So in the comic he's the voice of fate which we haven't talked about fate yes yes the voice of fate uh so fate is a very interesting uh element of the comic that's not in the film which we can Mm -hmm. talk about more later but yeah what i was sort of thinking about was how if if we got another adaptation i think you wouldn't be able to avoid having fate in it because Mm -hmm. fate so the conceit is that uh, Norse Fire, the government, has developed this supercomputer, essentially something that's almost on par with an artificial intelligence, but it runs yeah. all of their cameras. It, I think it's implied that it plans their economy 
coordinates all of their data and it's this massive computer called fate mm -hmm. which has such it has abilities right down to weather prediction right and so at one point they have this complete trust in fate and adam susan is constantly at the console of fate watching the data it gives to him until he eventually starts projecting all of his romantic desires onto it and thinks of it as this like <laughs> entity that he's in love with and that he worships um, yeah. and of course there's the big reveal that v has actually hacked into fate and has been yeah. essentially running it for like years it's implied that he's been yeah with them. he's just been monitoring the government the whole time and messing with them <laughs> yeah well and uh i uh wanted i wanted to say so this is this is a bit of a reading between the lines thing oh yeah but uh there's a secondary character called rose um, mm. she is the wife of i believe the head of the finger the secret police he, she's the abused wife he, yeah he was the finger before um the, was it Cro is it crowley crowley I think it's crowley hold on i've got a I know. I was down. like, I'm totally spacing on his name. Oh, uh, yeah. I think th I think it is that. But yeah, he was the finger before he gets assassinated, um, and then somebody takes over. <laughs> yes, but and then, yeah, V kills him. Creedy. <laughs> yeah, Creedy. His name is Mr. Creedy. I was like, not Crowley. That's yeah. not right. Creedy. But uh, V assassinate. Uh, well, V actually, technically speaking, it depends on how you define it. But V kills. Yeah. <laughs> v kills her husband, her abusive husband, mm -hmm. but who was also her lifeline. And what's really interesting is that her life starts spiraling downwards in part because her benefits are cut. Yeah. Now, you could read this in several ways. Obviously, it's, you know, it's a brutal fascist organization. It doesn't really care about people that much. So it's completely believable that they'd just be like, eh, who cares? But given, uh, given the extensive control that fate has and given her eventual role in the story, it's also possible that V did that to her. That's a good ooh, ooh, yeah. Because, uh, v V makes and V makes several sort of oblique references to her. Um, there's the whole thing about how he grows roses and he leaves a rose at the scene of every person that he murders, and at one point. Mm -hmm. He's talking to Evie in, I believe, the third book, and she asks him if he has a rose in his rose garden for Adam Susan. And mm. V says, no, I have a very special rose for him. Oh, my God, you're and right. Rose Ooh. is, in fact, the one oh who Oh, my murdered. God, I love it. Yeah, because <laughs> she's the one that assassinates him. Yeah. Now, it, it does rely on a little bit of suspension of disbelief in, in this story about oh, but a totally. superhuman and, <laughs> you know, AIs and stuff yeah. like this. But, uh, but, I mean, talk about your domino effect, yeah. right? Where it's like he kills the husband who then makes her spiral because she's lost her husband even though she was in an abusive relationship. And then she starts having this cascade of misfortunes where she loses her coverage she starts getting advances from her husband's colleague and is feeling trapped with that whole thing going on and yeah. then like and then she murders him too and then he murders him too because <laughs> why not and then she's like a dancer at a club yeah. and, and there's like a whole and then she wants a gun and then gets caught up with that crazy scots guy and yeah. there's like a whole bunch of stuff that happens with her and then it just kind of ripples into her going to like the very final book where she's in the crowd for everybody to like cheer on Mr. Susan. And because she was the husband of a diplomat, yeah, and he, they let he her go up to her. Yeah. He, 
I don't think he does. The security guards do. He thinks he. Re- I thought that was in his narration is that he says something. Oh, about I can't like, remember. Oh, I think yeah. I recognize her, and I think that's actually his last words as he's about to shake her hand, and he says, "Yeah, he's like, oh, before, shake my hand, haven't we?" Yeah, yeah, head. and she blows his head off. Yeah, uh, what a turn. Yeah, I know it is pretty. Wa- oh my god, Dan. My mind <laughs> blown my mind. I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even think of that. You're right. Totally, totally, totally. Yeah. Well, and, and that's sort of what I was talking about, how the uh, the first uh, section of the graphic novel is a lot more conventional. It's a much more conventional yes. kind of action story. And that by the end of it, it has become less about V directly attacking people and more about him setting things up to create chaos and uh, mm-hmm. cause people to kind of take things into their own hands and cause violence everywhere. Um, yeah, yeah, all that set up. And then you kind of like see where the pieces fall. The second book and third book, it definitely is, you know, all that set up in the first and then you see where it goes. Yeah. For sure. Oh my gosh. Well, we, I, I, I know we could continue talking about this. <laughs> Pretty much. And I, <laughs> this is like, oh my God, this is a work that people could just study for life. Uh, but I, I want to transition us a little bit towards the Oh, but I didn't get to the point where I reveal who V really is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we can Reve- save that for a Oh, I was like, we can save it or we can reveal it really fast. <laughs> he is no, no one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so let's slowly transition into this uh, adaptation and then we'll keep digging into that. So I'll give a quick synopsis really quick of the adaptation and then we'll go from there. All right. Sounds cool. All right. Following World War, London is a police state occupied by a fascist government and a vigilante known only as V, played by Hugo Weaving, uses terrorist tactics to fight the oppressors of the world in which he now lives. When V saves a young woman named Evie, played by Natalie Portman, from the secret police, he discovers an ally in his fight against England's oppressors. (sighs) So, very different vibe Mm. than the graphic novel for multiple reasons. The first kind of thing I wanted to ask you about the movie is what were your kind of initial thoughts? Like you've already commented that it was very different than the graphic mm-hmm. novel, but what kind of stood out to you? Like what made you kind of come around to liking the film? Uh, well, so first things first, front and center, casting Hugo Weaving as V. Oh my God. And apparently he was not the initial cast. Uh, it was another oh. gentleman. Oh dear, I'm forgetting his name. I believe he was the actor who played Mark Antony on uh, HBO's Rome series. I cannot for the life of me remember his name. Oh my gosh, where's Julie when I need her? She'd know. Uh... I cannot remember who that is, but I know I can see his face. I, yeah, I can't remember his name. He's he's a great actor. So the the story I actually read re, there was a relatively recent news article. So the story was he he was hired for the part. You know they were very impressed with him as Mark Antony. Then uh, there were conflicts. They said that he didn't like working with the mask on. Um, so he left oh. the production and Hugo Weaving took over. Um, okay. Later, that first actor has actually come out and said non-specifically, but he said he didn't have an issue with the mask. What he had an issue with was he had very different ideas about playing V. Oh, okay. And he hasn't said specifically what that is. Well, being a fanboy, I, I think he was like, V needs to be mean like he is in the comic, but who knows? He, he is be- kind of an asshole in the <laughs> comic, I will say. No, it's very no charming, softness. but he's uh, not he is not the character portrayed in the film. But no. Hugo Weaving is dynamite. Dream. Dream. Oh, my God. But he's what he's one of those performers who can 
throw himself into just about any part and always do at the very least a great job like oh my god um, like 150 percent yeah at everything he does like uh oh. he's talked a bit about how uh he played he was the first guy to play the red skull in the marvel uh comic films yes and i think he he's dynamite and like that's sort of I a know. it's sort of a nothing part like he's just you know i'm a mean nazi you know? I mean, <laughs> as <laughs> but, you do yeah but uh but he nailed it but he nails it he you know he yeah. makes this guy like very sinister and you know plays it perfectly to the tone of the film and he's talked mm-hmm. about how he was like you know he didn't hate it but it's not exactly a complicated role not his best role uh, but he is great in everything um, i know and of course oh elrond and agent smith and yep uh, yep he's worked with the wachowskis quite a few times actually yes oh i know hugo weaving dream yeah he's like his voice was perfect his delivery was perfect you don't ever see his face but you don't need to oh yeah the the character that he creates and it's all in the emotion of his that his body is giving off in the tone of his voice and it's just gorgeous yes. he, oh i love <laughs> yeah so he's he is truly spectacular i think uh, we, were, we were talking about things that that drew me around to the film again visually it's quite exciting um, it's beautiful. I think it's it's very beautiful. There's a lot of really the action sequences that are in it are very tense. You know, there's the the sort of hostage sequence when V uh, sends his transmission out and he has oh, yeah. disguised all of his hostages as hit. You know, he's put them in his mask. So that whole sequence is really excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in particular, the last time I watched it, I I had had a few adult beverages, and I. <laughs> I oh, got no. I got to the <laughs> the sequence where we see V's birth, you know, his origin sequence yeah. as he escapes God. from the uh, what a scene. concentration camp. And there's that sequence of him standing there backlit, you know, with the fires all around him as he's blown up. And he's he's sort of this black outline raising his fists in victory and victory and screaming. And I, I because I was a little ne- inebriated, I actually watched it and <laughs> just said, wow. You know, like I was watching it Damn. alone. And I was just like, yeah. that, was, that was a good moment. They really captured that. Um, it's solid. It's solid. And again, honestly, I think the only reason that it, it was cut the way it was is because the Wachowskis did the screenplay. Mm, yeah, I was they going to say are, that the, you can oh see their God. DNA is everywhere. In, oh, my uh, God. Leave it to the Wachowski sisters to have like a beautiful interpretation of anything that's a graphic novel like comic book or whatever because it's like the matrix when they wrote that they wrote it as a comic book first Mm. and then they used that to create the matrix and they're also like i've already talked to sam about this but they were huge ghost in a shelf right like they're really into the comic book scene and they they do such a good job of blocking and and showing a you know a written medium in scream form mm. and it's it's gorgeous and it because it, it almost feels like paneling but it's so much more vivid than a graphic novel can be and oh my god they nailed it yeah they, they always do they always do such a great job <laughs> I was I was also going to say uh, something that kind of stuck out to me uh, that the film does very well is it has a really good sense of humor yeah um like there there's quite yeah. a few funny moments especially with V I won't get into the comparisons uh, too much yet but I just remember at the in the big climax uh, V is standing off with all all of uh, in the film version it's uh, Creedy and mm-hmm. his his thugs they're standing off yeah. with him and 
Creedy has his big speech where he says, you know, what are you going to do? You've got all your knives and your your knives. Karate. (laughs) And we've got, you know, we've got guns. And he says, Mm -hmm. no, what you have are bullets in the hope that when you have expended all of them, I will be dead because if you're <laughs> yeah. not, you will be dead before you can reload. <laughs> you know, I know. Like... It's genius. And Hugo Weaving's delivery is so funny. You know? I know. <laughs> like he has a very good sense of comic timing. All right. New topic. We're just going to talk about Hugo Weaving and we're just going to yep. fangirl all over new, the rest of the episode, topic. guys. Hugo <laughs> Weaving. <laughs> he is a national treasure. Elrond, <laughs> best elf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is gorgeous. And, and I think... You were talking about the fire scene where we see like kind of the birth of V. On the flip side of that, I think my favorite scene in the film is when Evie gets out of her Ooh. version of the concentration camp and her birth of like what she really becomes at the end of the film is when he takes her to the roof and she's standing in the rain and she says, God is in the rain. And that moment where they have the juxtaposition of her standing in the rain and like laugh crying yeah. and him standing in fire, like a, a you know flashback and him screaming. Yeah. Oh my God. Shivers. Shivers. <laughs> it's such a good scene. And it's the the music. I mean, the, the soundtrack for the film is gorgeous. And that whole scene is like very emotional, lots of strings, and, and it's a like big, big feel, very emotional, sweeping you away. And it's gorgeously shot. Mm. And again, it looks like a living, breathing graphic novel, the way that they do the blocking. It's, it's, <laughs> a fan girling over here yeah it's i love it yeah. it's it's beautifully put together and and the, i, I felt it aged quite well you know like the, yeah. this was my whole my whole experience with this project is you know as i said like i i had read and seen it as a teenager and then i think i mm-hmm. i think i'd read the comic like maybe once maybe eight years ago so i was kind of like well, I still like this as much because, you know, I'm, I am not, in fact, an edgy teenage boy anymore. Right. The nostalgia factor might have worn um, off, right? Yeah. But I was I was delighted to discover that, well, it, it didn't have quite the same uh, meaning to me then as it does now. I think I appreciate uh, a lot more elements of it now, you know. As a teenager yeah. reading it, I was just like, yeah, get him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anarchy. The bad, the bad Nazis. <laughs> this is great. Yeah. <laughs> Very different takeaway as you get older, yeah, especially older, in like, like the political climate that we're in now. Yeah. Like, I f- I'm like, damn, this is really poignant right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It is one of those, unfortunately, uh, timeless despite being very very distinctly rooted um when it was yeah. written, it was very distinctly rooted in 1980s britain mm-hmm. well i mean it's time stamped i yeah. mean they actually show you the dates and the time yeah i was i was going to in say the comic book. Uh, yeah. I, I had meant to include in my in my blurb for the comic a, a little joke about the far off future of 1998 <laughs> yeah i know it ends in 98 i'm like oh my god we've so far past that yeah <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And I did want to talk about Evie Hammond's character, yes. which is played by Natalie Portman. So what what are your kind of thoughts about her character in the film adaptation? Uh, well, I would say in the film, I guess I am going to get a little bit into a comparison thing. But I'd say in the film, she is much more proactive. Yes. I would say she, she's a much personally stronger in term in terms of what she's doing what her attitudes are you see she fights back against v a lot more she's not as gung-ho about supporting him when they go to kill the bishop her plan is actually to betray him and escape Mm -hmm. her relationships are quite different and in the comic i think the third act is ultimately about her adopting v's persona 
she's his Robin, you know, she's, she's his squire. And when his time is Mm -hmm. over, it is her time to take over and put her own stamp on the identity of V. And in the film, I think it's more about her ultimately vindicating V, like her forgiveness for him and her acknowledgement of, uh, not that everything he did was right, but her acknowledging why he did the things he did, that's sort of what mm-hmm. redeems him. Yeah. So I'd say, I'd say she's much more active in this. I don't want to be mean, but I don't think it's Natalie Portman's best part. Um, <laughs> that's okay. I think I, my, my humble suspicion is that I think this was around the time she was trying really hard to break out of like ingenue roles. Uh, she didn't want to. And Star Wars. Yes, and Star Wars. Like she didn't want to be, you know, yeah. I'm the young woman and that's, I'm young and a lady and that's yeah. my entire character. Yeah. So I think she, I'm sure she was fighting really hard to make her character more active, but I think she didn't quite have the chops yet to deliver the some of the performances she's given more recently. Her accent was yeah. on and off okay, which is like, she's not British. She was pretty early in her career. So it's like, she's definitely improved since then. I think that there were certain parts, um, I will say huge kudos to her for actually shaving her head for that. Yes. Like when they're shaving her head in the film, they really are shaving her head. Yeah. Which I'm like, yes, girl. Girl, yes <laughs> rock a buzz cut i am not brave enough to do that Ugh, kudos like badass so there are things about it like was a band the essence name, right? of it i thought what i is? thought that was a band name a, a band named itself at the time they named themselves natalie portman's shaved head <gasps> did they really yeah yeah there was like a bit i'm not sure what kind of music it was but i oh, remember like like that. after the movie came out yes. you know, was this band that actually was relatively successful like they got on the radio and then um I think I think they did eventually have a legal dispute with her and have to change their name because they were oh my God. making their money off of her name. That's <laughs> hilarious. I did not but know yeah, that. So it was, Genius. Yeah, it was this whole thing. Natalie Portman's shaved head. I mean, badass. Yeah. I can see why there would be legal issues with that, but <laughs> I, we digress. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, there's parts of it, like, again, going back to the rain scene, like, that's a beautiful scene mm. and it's so much emotion and she captured it so well. And I think that for me personally, I liked her character more at the end because there was so much more like poise mm. and a lot more pensiveness to her character. And she just had a lot, she had more emotion and didn't have to be, be like, over the top about it Hmm. the beginning like i feel like she was very shaky and was like i'm trying to be innocent right i'm not quite hitting that tone she's playing the vulnerability too much yeah it didn't quite hit with me but the end i mean the the center that her character gets at the end i think from really from that end scene on the the rain scene to the end i think her character really hit home for me personally yeah i think that's a great observation and i think based on my own speculation i think that's what she wanted to play the whole time like that's what she was focused on was to play this sort of self-actualized you know she's she's her own person she's her own courageous person now yeah she doesn't have to cry about hayden christensen anymore (laughs) (laughs) hayden christensen can cry about about himself Oh, bless. Hayden Christensen, we love you. It wasn't you, I know. It wasn't you writing. I forgive you. (laughs) Yeah, and and I was just going to say a quick thing that also 
when you're compared to Hugo Weaving on screen, he stole every single moment he was on screen. So it's really hard to be up against that. That's impossible. (laughs) You know, he's this veteran actor who's quite a bit older than her and, you know, wearing this cool, strange outfit. And he gets to be, you know, giving monologues and sword fighting. Epic monologues that all begin with bees. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. God bless. I know. Which is, oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I interrupted you. Yeah. Oh, I, I just had a tiny little aside about another charming bit of stunt casting in the film uh, was mm. dear old John Hurt as Adam Ugh. Adam Suttler. Suttler. Uh, yeah. Just in case you didn't get that they're fascists, his He's, name yeah. sounds like Hitler. So we're so, so we're close. really clear. <laughs> <laughs> and they have an actual like very Hitler moment with the big the giant propaganda f- uh, flags oh and all that. Yeah, and yelling at a podium. Yeah. And, oh my God. Yeah. But I, I thought that was a Hitler vibes. A fun uh, bit of stunt casting because I believe he played Winston in 1984. Oh my so God, he, he did. Went from being crushed by a dystopian government oh to running the God. dystopian government. Yes. And, Full circle. Uh, still, still getting crushed <laughs> by it. You know, <laughs> poor old John. Oh my God, yeah. John Hurt. Oh my he, he god! He had to become Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, yes, he had to. F- yeah. Evil, oh my god! Edgy yes, Doctor yes, Who. yes. Edgy Doctor Who. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> Not quite War Doctor Who. Yeah. Uh. Oh my god! Yeah. John Hurt. Oh, that man. Oh, rest in peace, John Hurt. I love that guy. He, oh, is he dead? He, he did. Oh he did pass no! A couple years ago. Oh. I know. Yeah. R.I.P. Yeah. So his character was fascinating because you never see him in person in the film until the very very end when he's getting dragged into the cellars or the I don't even know where they are, like in the old subways they're, yeah, or something. Yeah, they're in like. a, it's, V travels through the London underground. Okay, yeah. So they drag him somewhere underground. <laughs> but you don't see him in person until that point. You always see him on this gigantic screen overlording over his, you know, disciples, if you want to call them. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, what I was- Fascinating character. I was going to say, um, this is kind of a dumb observation, but the Wizard of Oz is really big in film language, like in film yeah. grammar. Guy behind the curtain, yeah. And I think, yeah, and I think that's like a universal thing is that they love to have, you know, a lot of film productions love to have our villain is projecting himself as really gigantic, and huge. And then when yeah. you finally see him, I mean, the screen him, is like tiny little man. <laughs> I know. Well, and he's, you know, literally scraped to the bottom of, like, he's already been beaten. Oh, yeah. And he, he was hooded and, like, dragged into this underground, like, somewhere <laughs> and is, like, hysterical by that point. So he's, like, this little tiny man where up until that point, he's just face on a screen. He's totally invincible and, yeah, yeah untouchable, and, right? Yeah. Yeah, dear old John Hurt. Oh, God bless. Poor guy. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm bummed. How did I miss that? I'm sorry. How did I miss that? <laughs> oh, I've totally, I've crushed you. I'm so sorry. That was not the plan today. <laughs> no, it's all, it's all right. All right. This, this is in his honor. <laughs> oh, John Hurt. I know. God bless that guy. Yeah, it's it's oh, such good casting. Such good casting. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's great. And then... um. Really quick, I wanted to talk about a character that is pretty unique to the film yes. is Stephen Fry's, Stephen character, Fry's character as yeah. Dietrich. Oh my god, Stephen <laughs> Fry. This, I mean, this is like killer cast. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Like, what are your thoughts on Stephen Fry's character? Oh, okay. Um, so 
what are my thoughts on Stephen Fry's character? So I think I watched Besides a, him being amazing. Yeah, well, he's, he's a very <laughs> charming comedian. Um, I'm a big Blackadder fan. He has he has a really mm. good role in a couple seasons. Oh, my left. God. Um, yes. But, Blackadder. Uh, yeah, so Stephen Fry, I, I felt like it was an interesting choice to show Stephen Fry as he, he's a gay man who has hidden. Right. Like that, mm-hmm. he, that's sort of how he got away from kind of the sweeps is by becoming invisible. Yeah, super closeted. And specifically, yeah. it's so in the in the film version, uh, in the comic, Evie is going out to attempt to become a prostitute to make ends meet. Also, she's 16. Yes, and she's, she's, she's a teenage girl. Um, <laughs> yeah. Woo. Yeah, I can see why they upped her age. Yeah. That's risque. Um, yeah, I, I have a, <laughs> a, a, I have a, uh, some thoughts about that when we get into the comparison section. We'll but, get there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in the film version, she is going out to dinner with him. With the Im- the implication is that he has a reputation for being this sort He's of like sleazy Lothario kind of character. Yeah. But then, of course, we discover that it's a, it's all an act. You know, he doesn't actually sleep with any of the women who come over to his house. They're sort of his cover. But yeah, so I found him interesting, and I think it was a I think it was an interesting choice to have him instead of Evie's boyfriend character. Yeah, I think I do miss the vengeance theme for Evie. I feel didn't really appear. We didn't have the moment of Evie having to decide whether or not she wants to kill the people responsible for hurting someone she cares about. Yeah. But yeah, he's quite charming. And uh, I'm not positive if I saw a director's cut or if I'm just misremembering. But (laughs) I believe in the initial theatrical release, he was on screen significantly less. Yeah, I I remember I remember a reviewer, a terrible review, uh, being written that the reviewer seemed to a hundred percent think Stephen Fry was V. <laughs> like he was like V is <laughs> no. V is revealed to be Stephen Fry, and it's like you missed the scene with the hideous hand scars. <laughs> also, he like makes a joke about it yeah. in the film where he's like, "I am V," yeah. and she's like, "That's not funny," and he's like, "Eh." Yeah, so so there is an interesting connection between them that they both make breakfast the same way. They make eggy in a basket. And I wonder, I'm, I'm <laughs> curious what your thoughts are on that, because I, I didn't really, I wasn't sure if it's just supposed to be a coincidence or if, you know. That, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what the purpose of that correlation was supposed to be, because it's like the same vibes where when she first goes to the shadow gallery, V is making her eggs in a basket mm-hmm. and has like kind of oldies playing in the background from like the 30s 40s and there's that kind of initial and then she goes to Dietrich's and then same kind of thing the first day she's there he makes the same breakfast and she's like oh my god this is so weird I don't really know what the correlation for that is and I wonder if they did that just to like plant the seed of like ooh, maybe he is yeah and I don't I don't know I didn't really understand that correlation too much but from like the character that's kind of depicted by Stephen Fry. I I think my favorite part of his is when he writes the satire episode, mm. which is what gets him arrested yeah, and, and, and executed. And <laughs> executed. Well, him having a Quran in his house yeah. is what gets him executed, but it starts with him creating a satirical piece that was not approved by the government mm. and pokes fun at the chancellor, which that to me was you know, the that's kind of the beauty of satire is it's supposed to like it was written to poke fun at the monarchy, to poke fun at the dichotomy of the kind of elite class versus the lower class. That's kind of how satire was born. Mm. 
And so you see this kind of revolutionary thought process of making a episode that is completely satirical and poking fun of the government. And like it it made me like very French Revolution vibes of like the marriage of Figaro and mm. stuff like that, where it very, very revolutionary vibes. And I kind of liked that correlation that they did. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's an interesting thing about what uh, what threatens authoritarian states. That's that's very real. Like Antonio yeah. Brojas uh, was a Cuban uh, comic artist who did Spy versus Spy for Mad Magazine. Castro actually demanded that he be executed because he did a bunch of comics that were making fun of the of the communist government, you know, and, yeah. that, and he did escape. He didn't get killed. Um, but but that it is that thing where it's like, OK, you are you are in charge and you're threatened by this guy, like drawing dumb pictures of you. you know. I know. Uh, but it's very true. Like It is. Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, the whole lack of freedom of speech, lack of expressionism mm-hmm. is very much f- like a fascist regime's kind of MO. Yeah. And I, I I, did like that piece. I don't think that, I think it added to the texture of kind of the world that is built in the film. But I, I think I agree with you. I think that the whole pivotal point for Evie when in the comic is when she's wanting to murder the guy who murdered her lover. Yeah. That's like a huge turning point for her because up until that point, she's like, I will not kill yeah. for any reason. And then she gets pushed to the brink of like, I'm going to go and kill this dude. And she's literally in the alleyway about ready to kill him. Right. And then V kind of snatches her up. So I think that that definitely, it doesn't give that gravitas of that decision for her because it, that storyline was completely cut. But I think that they added flavor in a totally different direction just again to to build that political sphere a little bit more. Mm. But that's that was kind of my interpretation yeah, of yeah. it. Well, uh, do you want to move into full? We've already sort of yes. started talking. I know. <laughs> this happens every yeah. time. I'm like, we're already there. Yeah. So yeah, we're jumping into it. Let's talk comparison. Tell me everything. Uh, okay. So uh, circling <laughs> back around to Hugo Weaving's wonderful performance and the differences, uh, uh, I would say one of the biggest ones, the biggest difference between the graphic novel for me and the film is that Hugo Weaving plays V very vulnerable. Yeah. That like totally. for you know, for example, that very distinct iconic monologue um that he gives the at the beginning. very beginning where he's saying, Ah, oh, vociferously vexing, blah 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 blah. Yeah, and at blah, one blah, point blah, he's <laughs> you know, as he gets towards the end of it, he kind of giggles to himself, right? Oh, that giggle. Right? That giggle. <laughs> where it's like it's, he's, he's saying, like, hey, it's like just keep, yeah. you know, and uh that to me, V in the film is very, very human. His mm, like mm-hmm. he's sort of putting on a show and that there's a lot of a lot of his behavior, there's a lot of moments where he gets kind of embarrassed or, you know, like Evie catches him acting out the sword fights in the Count of Monte yeah. Cristo film that he's watching. And he acts yeah. kind of like a kid. He's very childlike. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that also plays into him having romantic feelings towards Evie. He gets very Phantom of the Opera. Yes, a little, but not nearly as psycho. No, not nearly yes. as psycho, but like in terms of, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the disfigured subterranean sort of... No one will ever love yeah, me. No, I must wear a yeah, mask. I must wear yeah. a mask. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I wish I yeah. could be with the woman I love, but I cannot. <laughs> He's like Ariel. He wants to be with the people <laughs> yeah. are. Uh, contrasted <laughs> with, I was thinking about how in the comic book, one of my very favorite sections is when V has a conversation with the statue of Madame Justice. Yeah, that is a great scene. 
And it's crazy. Yeah, and I was thinking <laughs> about how truly V in the comic is operating on a different level than everybody else because there is no oh, yeah. audience. He's not giving a performance to anyone but nope. himself. And he's, he's acting just out. by himself. He acts out the entire conversation with Madam Justice before he blows her up. Yeah, and they flip back and <laughs> yeah, forth no. too. Again, beautiful drawing because they are acting like there are two yeah. people having a conversation, but it's just him chatting away with himself. Yeah. I feel you never have the same moments of vulnerability for the comic character Mm -hmm. and that the comic character really is this truly unstoppable force. He's more of an idea than a person versus V in the film. He very much is, I think, a person. I think there's a man underneath all of that who is trying to turn himself into a symbol. I was also thinking a little bit about... um, there's the whole concept and the com the comic kind of flirts with this idea that I find really, really interesting is uh, Detective Finch points out that it is entirely possible that everything they know about V isn't true. Yeah. Like he, he points out that V has systematically killed all of these people who worked at a concentration camp, mm-hmm. but he knows that like all of the information they get about V is in Dr. Surge's journal. She's the most sympathetic person that V kills. And right. she was actually the, she's effectively the story's version of Dr. Mengele. She's the one who was doing the horrible experiments, but she yeah. has the decency to at least feel bad about it afterwards. Right. <laughs> right. She does at least regret, but yeah, she is. Um, yeah. But uh, a top scientist at the time. But, you know, Finch finds the diary and he sees that pages of it have been torn out. And he realizes mm-hmm. that every piece of information they have, V wants them to have. It's very catered. Yeah. So it's very, very possible. I don't necessarily think we're meant to fully think that's the case of the story, but it's very possible that V is someone completely different, you know, that, mm-hmm. that he was never in the concentration camp, that what it, whatever the source of his abilities are, it might be something totally different. Mm-hmm. And that he is, he's more of a force of nature than a person. Whereas yeah. in the film version, I think he, the trauma is very present and the vulnerability is oh, very yeah. present. Yeah, it's all about, I mean, the literal name is, it's all about that vendetta yeah. in the film, where he is a man wronged and he is getting justice for what was done to him and also trying to free people from a fascist regime. But really, it starts with yeah, him, him personally wanting revenge. Want to get even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that with that kind of process of d- the differentiation of the two characters, I think that for me, the comic book version is like he's like a wildfire Mm. he just kind of does crazy shit and you're like what's he gonna do next i don't know he's kind of all over the place because he's just he is just kind of chaos Mm. and he's organized chaos but he's still chaos and then on the film side i feel like he he sees himself as the spark he wants to start the conversations he wants to start the quote-unquote anarchy he wants to start that kind of change of thought if i may interject um that that is one of my big objections to the film is that v never Mm. says the word anarchy no he he has no he does not have an anarchist philosophy in the film no Um, he he has everybody else kind of interprets it yeah he he has a an anti-authoritarian philosophy yes you know he's anti-fascist but he is not uh, he doesn't embrace this anarchist ethos, um, which I think is mm-hmm. it's one of the things I dislike about the film. Yeah. And I think that also pulls very tightly into the fact that in the film ad- like version, they really focus on him not wanting to be an anarchist mm. or not wanting to be 
a terrorist, quote unquote. He's he really just wants vengeance and he wants to topple the government in the process. Yeah. That's kind of like an afterthought. He's like, oh, I'll just do this too. But what I really want is to kill these dudes. Yeah. And I think that is the, the the huge different of the character kind of flavors is one is just a, a man who has been wronged that needs vengeance, and the other is I'm just gonna mess the shit and see what happens because I want to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it needs to be done. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, move, moving to the next character, if you don't mind, the yes, our, of course, one of our mains, and there's there's one more character we haven't discussed that I think we absolutely have to, but we'll leave her aside oh, yeah. for a moment. But um, okay, uh, so for me, I think Evie is the opposite in the in the film and the comic that that in the comic yes. it's very much the story evie is a lot younger and it is very much the story of her maturation into an adult absolute dormant yeah yeah she's <laughs> like she's, i kind of hate her character in the comic yeah. to be honest well yeah she's kind of a noodle you know and that like her she exists in the story to basically be V's sounding board and then eventual successor. Like she follows that role yeah. of slowly she does transition into being more of an idea than a person, right? Well, and not to bash too much on Alan Moore, but it was written in the eighties. It was written by a man. Nineteen eighty two, like, you know. You know, just the mentality there of not writing great female characters. Like you look at all the women in that are depicted in the comic they're either in abusive relationships or they're abusing their <laughs> significant other like by not having sex with yeah. them with i mean or they're they're getting almost raped or i mean there's well she's uh, uh what's her name um Heridge, the the one you you mentioned yeah she, she's physically yeah. abusive too but it's like they're they're all either evil or abuse victims you know? yeah exactly <laughs> it's like not a great picture well, for the ex- except roles. for one but uh except for yeah, one except for this one, is true um who yeah. arguably is a victim too but she's she's a cool victim the way v is she's, <laughs> yeah she badass but yeah and and i think that's that's why i think the film they grew they kind of grew with the times because the film was released in 2005 so it's a little bit quote unquote a little bit more advanced in the thought process of writing a better role for well yeah and you can't have you know natalie actors. you can't have natalie portman just playing a noodle like you know? i yeah i mean you could but it wouldn't be enjoyable yeah. that's what star wars was yeah. so. um. <laughs> oh star wars <laughs> Don't get me started. Um, I what? Well, that's a whole other podcast episode. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, so so yeah, and then in the comic book, it's very much about her transitioning from you know it it, it is actually mapped out fairly well of child to adult, right? Where it's like, and uh, you know that she like leaves home for the first time, has her first serious adult relationship, has her first serious adult plotting to murder someone. We all go through that phase, as you do, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then ultimately, you know, takes over V's role versus in the film, I think she's already a grown person, you know, right? Like she's. she's yeah. We're assuming mid 20s. Yeah. Yeah. She's a young person in there, but her relationship with V is more of an active debate. It's less teacher and student and more. It's a little bit more peers debating with each other. Probably not quite, I would say, peers, but much, much. It's a much more even ground between the two of them. Yeah, I think that her character in the film really centers V's character mm. because he he comments. He's like, I didn't know that I could feel this way again until I met you. 
So I think that, you know, we were already talking that Hugo Weaving's right. depiction <laughs> humanizes that character and their relationship, which I'm I'm not crazy about the whole like, oh, yes, we must pair the man yeah. and woman together because it's cinema. Like, I'm not I'm not crazy about that. But the way that they kind of executed that relationship, it did feel it was romantic towards the end because they have that really cute touching moment where she kisses his mask yeah. and you never see his face. And I do like that they never revealed it because that was the one thing I was like, do not show his yeah. face. I much rather have you not show it because it just it that. It, I mean, we all know what Hugo Weaving looks like. <laughs> I mean, yes. <sighs> Dreamboat. I know. So, but I mean, it. the whole point is it's not a person. It's an idea. Yeah. So who cares what he looks like under the mask? And I love that they kept that, that gold. But the the romantic appeal that they had between them, I think the way that they played it out was it was romantic, but I feel like it was also a an appreciation for him as an individual of what he went through and the trauma that he had to deal with in his life. And he kind of showed her mm. another side of her world. And I think that it was kind of tied up in a romantic relationship, but there's also this appreciation of like, you showed me things that I never would have been able to find on my own. It was messed up, but she kind of got to this new sense of awareness mm. because of him. And he was able to kind of reconnect with his human side because of her. So that's right. kind of ha reading, yeah. very reading between the lines. Yeah. No, but... <laughs> no, I, I think that's a completely uh, grounded interpretation. The, re the reason I laughed a little bit when, when you started talking about that is I was just thinking, you know, uh, Film V has that wonderful line about how, you know, she made him feel things he didn't think he could feel again. And mm -hmm. Comic Book V would, would be more like, ah, wonderful, a new body to program to be my successor. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, kind of like crazy, like Joker vibes. I was going to say, uh, particularly <laughs> early in the comic, he oh, God, really yeah. feels like a character that would fight Batman. And interestingly enough, hardcore. They Joker. actually, uh, they actually did kind <laughs> of adapt him into Batman comics at one point. Oh, I bet. There's a, yeah, there's a character called Anarchy who is. Oh my he, God, he that's pretty right. much. He wears like a red and gold outfit uh, that really really looks like v's outfit and Sassy. you know hey it's it. great if you're gonna steal steal from the best you know? yeah yeah no and that it is true like in the comic he is much more chaotic good yeah i guess or well uh, honestly maybe, i would say more chaotic. don't get me started on alignments but, uh, <laughs> chaotic neutral yeah chaotic i was, good, I was going to say it, it's, wibbly wobbly you know he's, he's devoted to the principle of chaos which but, yes well, I want to actually bring up something. The biggest distinction that I thought for the film and the uh, graphic novel was the kind of vehicle for how the world got into the state that it is. Ooh, so yes. in the movie, they have this whole like line that is all throughout the film about biological warfare and there was like right it's a, a deliberately released biological agent yeah. yeah so it's like they call it the the issue of saint mary's right so they have like a hundred thousand people get poisoned and die from some sort of biological warfare that was released by what you know the populace is told as terrorists who confessed and were executed but then flip it's actually the government who manufactured biochemical warfare and then paired up with a pharmaceutical company to then have the miracle cure. So they like concocted it to basically have their people fall in line and they're like, oh, look, the government saved us. Yeah. Messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Messed up. Yeah. It's... Genius plot device, though. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think it's kind of interesting because, again, like Detective Finch is still fairly sympathetic. Yeah. But in the film, I think like none of the authoritarian characters are sympathetic at all versus in the no. comic, like Susan, I think, is pretty clearly shown to be wrong. But you do get his monologue where he's talking about how like the world literally collapsed. We needed something to keep people together. I was that yeah. something. The only price was murdering a shit ton of people. <laughs> but no but that's what as you do. That's what it took to keep England it had alive. Had to be done. You know. Yeah. England prevails. Yeah. So. Oh my God! Yeah, <laughs> it's like the the ultimate Heil Hitler. England prevails. Mm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I actually have. I need to look it up on my phone. I actually have quotes from the movie that made me think of that. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Suttler says, good guy. Oh, no, no. This is actually Prothero, yeah. the, the voice. Good guys win, bad guys lose, and as always, England prevails. <laughs> it's like that in a nutshell. is like, holy hell. That is like yeah. the craziest quote. Yeah, I was I was <laughs> going to say it's a very, um, it's one of those like topical adjustments that they made uh, Prothero, they made him the voice of London instead of the voice of fate. And he's this yeah. sort of political commentator pundit character who's controlled by the government mm-hmm. instead of being literally the mouthpiece. Controlled by yeah, AI. Literally the mouthpiece yeah. of the government just reporting to people, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened. There's yeah. no debate. I, I see why they pulled the AI kind of the like having fate not be in the movie i think it's not nearly as visually dynamic yeah well and i would i would say because you're working with you know you're working in in the constraints of like a two-hour film right like you can't really have these big you can't have the whole subplot about evie on her own as uh, make that as expansive you can't have the stuff about the criminals you can't have all the stuff about the different factions fighting each other you have to kind of abbreviate all of that yeah because man i tell you we keep saying this over and over it's still true (laughs) that graphic novel is dense there's so much in there and it's like you i wish i wish they could have done like a mini series because then they really could have like dug deep Uh, yeah i think uh, hbo if you're listening to this do the mini series (laughs) i'm not sponsored by you but you should do it and hit that yeah. uh yeah make, make I, alan I mean, moore even ugh. angrier <laughs> <laughs> all that money you could have had alan moore he's all right he's Woof. he's he's got his <laughs> he's yeah fine. he's got his snake powers to, to <laughs> assuage him um well oh, we haven't God. talked about it but i think we would be remiss to not talk about uh valerie's letter yeah uh, do you oh, do you have God any bless. thoughts about that this is less of a compare and contrast because i feel like the film and the comic are pretty close together on that. nailed it yeah actually valerie's character they did a really good because i think regardless of how you portray valerie that storyline i think is pivotal yeah. that has to be in there because that's like that's all part of the huge transformation of mostly evie's character because that's where we meet her mm-hmm. is when she's being you know tortured by v and she's being fed a letter through a crack in the wall and it ends up being a you know this is what happened to v or supposedly from the graphic novel perspective that actually happened just a big story although she was real she is a real person both she was a real person in both versions because she was an actual actress but i i I think for me i had seen the film first and then went and read the graphic novel Mm. so for me having seen the film first and seeing how they depicted valerie and then going to the graphic novel i think it made that whole character and that whole kind of scene breakdown of her much more vivid Mm. because i had her voice in my head and i had kind of the imagery from the film and i 
doubled it up to the graphic novel. And for me, it really enriched that character. But they did a really good yeah. job of syncing. I mean, some of it is literally verbatim. I'm not sure who played her, but whoever did the voice work for that is I fantastic. don't think I've ever seen her in anything but that. And if I have, I don't remember. Yeah. But yeah, she was perfect for that role. Like, she was so delicate and so beautiful and perfect. And her voice was like just like gossamer yeah. it was so nice to listen to her voice and it's a really tragic story and it's pretty horrific to see you know in graphic form let alone visual like in a in a visual medium yeah but it was a really interesting character and it definitely drives both stories strongly i think yeah well and i i hmm. i i was sort of thinking just now about how like i guess a, a point of contrast is that in the film Again, it's all about like anger and vengeance. And in the comic, mm -hmm. V, at least in part, attributes why he's doing what he's doing to her. You know, yeah. that, that he's, he basically says that like the reason he has to destroy this system is because it killed somebody like her and that she yeah. is part of the reason he survived. Are, are you familiar with... Um, Logotherapy. No. Uh, so it's a it's a concept. I'm again grain of salt here because this is, this is <laughs> something I studied a very long time ago. Um, but it's sort of a psychological or philosophical concept that can basically be summed up as you can survive any how if you know why. Um, oh, interesting. It was, okay. It was concocted by a Holocaust survivor. Um, is that Ooh, this, wow. this guy had been in the concentration camps and. Uh, I wish I could remember his name, but it's escaping me. Um, but he had been in the concentration camps and he, you know, his like big sort of reflection was that he saw so many people die in these really horrible conditions. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't quite sure why for some people they could just keep going after enduring all mm -hmm. of these horrible things and how other for mm -hmm. other people they would eventually have a total shutdown. Oh, yeah. And his personal revelation was that the reason like he was not a particularly courageous person right like he wasn't this you know superhero character mm -hmm. but he was a musician and he had hidden some classical music that he had transcribed um in his i think he had hidden them in his apartment before he was uh, captured and dragged off and mm -hmm. he had basically vowed to himself that he couldn't let himself die until he recovered that music and made sure it was safe Oh wow! That he thought like the world would be deprived if they if they never and of course he did eventually like he survived he eventually got out and uh, I, I can't remember the end of the story but I think I think the music literally was just lost you know so it was oh no it was one of those things where it was more the uh, idea of being a of persisting right. I just need to get something. back to get my music yeah um and that God, and the human drive is incredible yeah well <laughs> that's what that and is I think there's a lot of that in V for Vendetta that like. Yeah, I think V, particularly comic V, may have just been a monster if it wasn't for Valerie. Like they, yeah, they talk about you know how he's functionally a sociopath, like what a meticulous planner he is, how he's able to basically lie to and coerce his captors and carefully plan out his escape. That's going to right. He creates mustard yeah, gas from which, random stuff. Uh, yeah, 
important note, uh, it's not explicitly stated, but implicitly, that would have killed inmates, too. Like, oh, it killed everybody. Right? Yeah, like, it's mustard gas, folks. That is know, not discriminating. Like that, there's, <laughs> yeah. that, uh, yeah. that his his escape was not about this, this like, just, you know, heroic thing. Like he was that. beyond that. And, I, and that is part of why I like the film so much, um, the depiction of him and how scary he looks when he makes his escape. Well, because he's burnt, you know, like, like, head to toe. Well, the fact that he's got, like, third-degree burns literally head to toe like any normal person you'd be dead right i mean you you would not survive not that hugo weaving. but because <laughs> he's hugo weaving he is a badass he's he's mr yeah. smith immune to fire one of one of <laughs> uh, mr die. smith's yeah. unknown powers immune to fire um <laughs> well and they also they crazy enough too they don't really t- i mean they don't talk anything about him being a burn victim or anything in the comic book but yes. in the film he's completely burned head to toe and has no eyes and is still able to do everything that he's able to do. And I'm like, what? So he's got like a crazy sixth sense or something. He has no eyes and he's completely uh, was, burnt head was to toe. Was that poetic? I thought that was poetic. I love yeah. it. Oh, oh no. I, I mean, I, I thought uh, when, when they say there were no eyes, I thought that was more of a poetic thing. But maybe he does have a daredevil thing going on. I don't know. It sure looked like, like he, he was didn't just have, didn't like have they were eyes. literally yeah. burnt out of his. I don't know. Maybe it was meant to be poetic. Be, I mean, he is he is superhuman. I mean, I I translated that literally, but, but I, maybe I'm I mean, completely off be, base. I don't know. That's a valid interpretation. Um, Either way, still yeah, that yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, superhuman. I, I want to put a pin in that for later because I have a little bit of trivia. Yeah. Um, oh, and, yes. And a teeny little love piece of, of half-remembered trivia. Um, yes. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so what else do we have on, on film film to book comparisons? Um, I mean, we. I. I think the big shift for me was the kind of biological warfare versus right versus just, a nuclear you know, war post apocalyptic. Yeah, which for me, I think that I don't know. I don't know which version I let. I feel like the biological warfare tactic. I think when it was made, mm-hmm. like the film, I think that that would strike more with the populace at the time. And I think maybe that's why they kind of shifted the focus. Whereas in the graphic novel, when it was being written was the eighties. And so that was, you know, cold war. Right. So we're, we're talking. Right. And a lot, a lot of protests about uh, denuclearization. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really the focal point at the time. So I can see where the inspiration came from on both sides of the fence. It still talks about nuclear holocaust in the film, mm. but the big pivotal point is is the biological Yeah, the biological and I, warfare. I think it is a very interesting point of contrast that the comic book Norse fire are, they're rising from the ashes. They're in response to a condition that they did not actively create. Right. They're just taking advantage of the situation. And that the film Norse Fire, they always wanted to be in charge. <laughs> do they call it Norse Fire in the film? They do call it Norse Fire. Do they? I totally missed that. There is. They do call it Norse Fire. There is a graphic I remember seeing like they show in the in the backstory they show a graphic of the votes and it's like you know labor conservative and then Norse fire everybody after that after that false flag terrorist attack everyone was just like screw the two-party system you know yep yep as you do I support if it's not gonna be a a brutal authoritarian state you know I think third party candidates are great (laughs) (laughs) you never know (laughs) But, but yeah, Norse fire also is like very Aryan. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. 
Just put that little cherry yeah, on top. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was going to say that's that's probably a, a pretty deeply rooted thing in uh, English, oh, English yeah. fascist movements in particular. Ooh, you know. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think I have a ton left to say about that. Well, now I'm dying to know what your trivia okay, is. Okay, so this you, is... You've dropped that, now a, I must this know. This is a <laughs> tiny piece of uh, grain of salt trivia. Yes. But our our dear boy, who I've referenced repeatedly, Alan Moore, the writer of this, a uh, very eccentric mm-hmm. character, very weird. If you look up a picture of him, he looks like a caveman. Uh, if you've ever heard <laughs> recordings of him, he talks like this. He's very charming and very eccentric. He's very British. <laughs> But uh, he started writing comics in the early 80s. Uh, He was sort of a young up-and-comer, and and particularly the comic comic magazine that V for Vendetta was published in, uh, he also wrote and was more famous for at the time doing an adaptation of a character called Miracle Man, or as he was originally known, Marvel Man. So there's a a whole (laughs) hilarious, complicated backstory, but essentially the character Captain Marvel, now a.k.a. Shazam, the the character who's like a little boy and then he shouts Shazam and he becomes this big Superman type character, originally called Captain (laughs) Marvel. Uh, He was printed uh, in Britain for a long time in the 50s, and then there was a legal dispute between Marvel Comics and the owners of Captain Marvel, so they had to change the name. But the memo never really reached Britain. The laws were different there. So they kept printing Captain Marvel comics under the name uh, Marvel Man. Not to be confused with other Captain Marvel. Not to be confused with other Captain Marvel or other other Captain Marvel. Or other other (laughs) Captain There are at least four Captain Marvels I can think of. Not to be confusing, but... Um, So there's this character, uh, Marvel Man, who's sort of a standard uh, superhero type. You know, he's a little boy who can transform into this this Superman guy. Um, And then in the 80s, Alan Moore uh, wrote the reboot of him. Mm. And it's very interesting. It's a lot of the it's a lot of the stuff he would sort of become famous for with uh, things like Watchmen. Sort of the prototype oh, of it yeah. is present there as he writes yeah. Marvel Man. I actually went back and read the first issue, and it's very interesting because the very first issue is drawn in the style of the old comics. And it's like Ooh, very cool. goofy and fun, and he's like fighting the science Gestapo from the future. And then it ends with, you know, they (laughs) defeat the bad guys and it ends with this slow zoom in on his eyes and like this, uh, this quote from uh, Nietzsche about the Superman in his eye is the lightning and the madness or something like that. And then eventually it spirals out into this story about uh, Marvel Man, a.k.a. Miracle Man, because they had to change the name again. Um, Again. Miracle Man. <laughs> Can I get a break? <laughs> living in the real world, right? And being in this yeah. world where there's, you know, corrupt conspiracies and where he's more of a source of terror rather than hope. People are more afraid of him than him being their champion. So that long bit of backstory <laughs> leads into this grain of salt piece of trivia. Okay. Now I can't cite a source on this, but I know I have read it. That's fine. We're not professionals, guys. Don't quote us. <laughs> Alan Moore and David Lloyd had originally intended that the big reveal was going to be that V was Miracle Man. Oh my God. <laughs> that, that he was oh, Miracle Man in, another, in an alternate <laughs> timeline. And that's why in the very, very early comics, 
they keep emphasizing the fact that V can rip someone's uh, rib cage open with his bare hands. And like, oh, he does a lot okay. of stuff that's similar to what Miracle Man would be capable of. They ditched <laughs> that idea very early on. Like, very early on, <laughs> they were like, wait, that this, is been terrible. So dumb. this is terrible. This is horrible. <laughs> <You know>? Abort. <laughs> But I think it it is this interesting artifact that we've been sort of talking about how the comic was like they had a rough sketch, but they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. And eventually Mm -hmm. it became this thing that was much more sophisticated than its origins. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Way. I can't even imagine if it ended that way. It would have been so goofy. Well, it would have it would have very much tied it to this one comic book, this one comic magazine at one time, this one universe instead of it becoming this thing that's a little bit above it. Oh yeah, it's way more sophisticated, and I I appreciate that they ditched yeah. that idea. But, <laughs> I'm sure many people you know, do. <laughs> yeah, I, I could go on and on about how many like sort of roots of things that are show up later in Alan Moore's career, and that like uh, oh yeah, he, there are a lot of shots of him that are very similar to Ozymandias in uh, uh, Watchmen. Um, like there's yep. the, the whole sequence of V staring at a million TV screens and being the secret mastermind, yep. and that's what Ozzy does, and uh, mm-hmm. he also. Uh, Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So this is this is. I just rewatched. Oh, that the other I day. haven't. I haven't watched the film. I've only read the comics. Um... <gasps> oh, it's horrible, but you should watch <laughs> might, it. I might give it a shot. <laughs> it's Sean Connery yeah. at his best, <laughs> and I say best. Was, I'm putting quotations. I was around going that. to say his best uh... sometimes resembles his worst. Uh, but the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen has yeah, yeah. a musical issue, and the for Vendetta the comic. <laughs> has a running song in it like it has this it musical does. aspect to it it does totally which uh yeah if you want to look it up david j of bauhaus did adaptations of oh, it oh don't you worry guys i'll be posting <laughs> that eventually it's gold you gotta hear it yeah. oh alan yeah. moore what a character weird weird guy <laughs> he is weird but man does he write amazing yeah. stories like for being so odd yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, Dan, I think we will come to a close. Right. This has been such a glorious conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much oh, for joining I, I me had today. A ton of fun. Thank you for having me on. Oh, bless. This was fantastic. I this such a good pick. Um, and before we kind of sign off, I did want to kind of ask you like, what are you doing right now? What are you reading right now? And if you don't know what to highlight i have something that i can highlight okay. for you uh so i uh i have not been reading as much as i like to but one of the things i have been re- i've been off and on reading two different books the first one i have just barely started but people have constantly recommended to me it is a science fiction uh series uh, the first part of a series yes. called a memory called empire by arcady martin I have barely started it, so I can't tell you too much about it. But so far, <laughs> that first chapter is fantastic. Uh, Ooh, it is it is about okay. an interstellar empire that is spread across yes. the stars. It has this very, very distinctive culture um, that has a lot of sort of Mesoamerican uh, motifs, uh, which I find very Ooh. unusual in science fiction. Um, so that is it, unusual. I like that. There's a certain amount of that, as well as a lot of other things. Um but a lot of it is about sort of diplomatic intrigue and political intrigue and the idea that these different people can sort of share memories with each other um, who have specific roles Ooh. within the space empire. Again, I have barely started the book, so I can't say much more about it. 
Um, well, I will say, Sam, if you're listening, I'm looking at you, kid. Um, <laughs> this is Sam's all the and way. And <laughs> then uh, a somewhat more academic book I have been reading is called A Story as Sharp as a Knife by Robert Brinhurst. Um, it's basically a collection of Haida myths, of Haida folklore um, from the Pacific Northwest. And uh, Ooh, very cool. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. It's based on a lot of translations, and uh, the author also has a lot of really interesting commentary about his thoughts on the concept of oral tradition and the role it played in the various societies of the Northwest. Yeah, so that's what I've been reading. So that's two recommendations for you. Yes. Well, I am going to shamelessly plug you, good sir. Yes, yes. Uh, You recently got published in a anthology, yes? Yes, I I did. Um, So Ah! I was in Parsec Inc.'s Triangulation Habitats, available now from Amazon.com. Uh, I will be adding a link in the description. Don't you worry, uh, folks. It is yeah, for sale. So that, that, <laughs> I, have a, I have a short story in there. Um, and then I also have a short story coming in an upcoming issue of uh, Analog Magazine. Um, so keep your eyes peeled for that. I'm not sure which one it will be in. Um, and then finally, if you would like to read some of my science fiction, I have it posted up on my website, www.dgprector.com and I will be adding all of this information so don't fret guys don't be furiously writing down I, I will have it all for you <laughs> yes how exciting congratulations thank you, thank you. I'm very pleased about it whenever it comes up oh my god yes shamelessly plug away my friend yes Yes, I'm so excited for you. That is such an achievement. Congrats. And uh, what what's uh, going on with Aaron? What have you been reading or watching or doing? <gasps> no one has ever <laughs> asked me. <laughs> I feel so loved. Uh, what am I reading? You know, I've been reading a lot of things as, I guess not homework, but I'm reading a lot of things that I intend to do as podcasts. I haven't really been reading anything outside mm-hmm. of that. So what am I reading right now? Oh, you know what? I lied. <laughs> I, di- I lied. So... um. I am actually reading the second book in the Altered Carbon series. Ooh, Altered Carbon. Yeah. So I um I was already kind of chatting with my brother mm-hmm. about it. And then I read the first book, which I'd seen the the show and hadn't read the books before. So then I went back and read the book for the episode. And so I had all that under my belt. And the writing was so beautifully done. I was like, well, now I have to read the rest <laughs> of them. So I'm actually reading the second one. And it is so wildly different than the first book, but it's still beautifully written um and i believe i believe the second one's called broken angels uh, it is wonderful i highly recommend it yeah i, I haven't gotten um, around yeah. to that one but i hear nothing but rave reviews oh so. i tell you what it's the descriptions in those books are just so beautifully put mm. together it is very very well thought out and the imagery that he kind of portrays in his words are just perfect like it's really solid writing and off, honestly like i'm all about the kind of um po- it's i guess it would be, i guess it's post apocalyptic technically but it's like post apocalyptic and then like very um like blade runner yeah, uh, and- cyberpunk what do you call it cyberpunk cyberpunk or- yeah thank you i was like i'm <laughs> grasping at what that word is yeah like cyberpunk kind of stuff like that is like my bread and butter like i'm all about that cyberpunk life so it's beautifully written stuff and really intricate and a lot of political kind of intrigue which yeah well, can't chef's get, kiss. Can't i get love enough it. of that I know, chef's kiss. It's pretty great. So I would highly recommend that. Thank you for asking. (laughs) I feel so special. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, Dan, thank you so much again. You are such a peach. I'm so glad that you came Thanks for having me here. Uh, Very always happy to ramble about V for Vendetta or anything else Alan Moore has written. Yes, we will definitely have to have you back because there's many another piece that we... Now I really want to do League of Extraordinary Uh, Gentlemen because I'm dying to know what you think of that film because it's kind of a trash gun on fire. But (laughs) it's really amusing if you don't think about it too hard. I'll have to give that a shot. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, thanks again for coming and thank you to our listeners for joining us today and we will see you next time. Thanks, guys. And that is a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>